So let's just start in verse 1. Genesis 35, verse 1. Here's what it says. Then God said to Jacob, and I would add the word again because he's told him this multiple times, go to Bethel. Go to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. And if you remember that story, that was chapter 28, and we're going to revisit that because it's been a few chapters. Let's look on screen at a verse together out of 28. This is when he was at Bethel the first time. It says, surely God, Jacob says, is in this place, and I was not aware of it. How awesome is that? He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place? And it was so awesome, by the way, that's where he made the rock pillow that I kind of joked about that night. But look what Jacob decided. This place, Bethel, is none other than the house of God. It's the gate of heaven. Then he had a vision, there was a ladder, and angels were ascending and descending. So that was a few chapters back. Now he's finally going to get there kind of for good, at least for a little while. But look at what God told him in that very first verse. He says, settle there. And what he's really saying is, be set apart. Be set apart from those pagans you just left in the last chapter. I want you to be my chosen people. Be set apart. Then he told him also, build an altar there. Build an altar and worship me there. Now, those two things don't exactly apply to us. See that storm I was talking about? Now you're hearing it. Um, God's just emphasizing his points here. Settle there. Build an altar there. That's what God just said. He's going to say it to us all night long. He doesn't tell us where to live. He, he might tell some of you, but he doesn't normally tell us where to live. But these two concepts that he's giving Jacob do apply to us. Settle here in our kind of, for us, our application would be come apart from the world. Be set apart. Be different. Be different from the world around you. And if you're taking notes, that'll be our first main point tonight. To come near to God like Jacob is doing, like we should do, it usually means we need to come out of the world, come away from the world. As scripture says, we can be in the world, but not of the world. We've got to distance ourselves, at least spiritually, from all the sin and evil in the world. That's what God is telling Jacob to do right here. Then his next point to Jacob still applies to us too. Build an altar. Now, we don't build altars. We don't worship like the Old Testament Jews do. But what our kind of translation would be in a way for us would be, make God a priority. Make me a priority is what he's saying to me and you. Worship me. What do we just do? We worship the Lord. But just so we're clear, worship is not just when we sing right before our church and the, the teaching starts. We worship God through praying. We worship God through our giving, our offering boxes in the back of the room. That is a form of worship in the Lord. So don't think it's just our singing. That is worship, but it's a small portion if you look at Scripture. So God is just telling us and Jacob, make me a priority. Worship me. Next verse. All that on one verse. So Jacob said to his household, after you know God told him this, and all who were with him, and it's a big group of people, sons, their wives, daughters, etc. Look what he says, though. Jacob says to his household, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourself and change your clothes. What foreign gods is almost what we want to think when we read that, or at least I do. But if you remember back, and we were here a few chapters ago, and this was chapter 31, um, I titled a message called Little G, Not For Me. It was about those little G false gods. I'm not going to put this one on screen, but I'll read it to you, because this will summarize that whole story, and it'll, I think, come back to you real quick. In 31.19, it says, When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Then if you remember that story, she hides him in the saddle. She won't stand up. She kind of lies about it. And Jacob, if you remember, said, nobody has those. If you find them, just kill whoever it is. Well, if you connect the dots of these two chapters, it looks to me anyway, you can make your own mind up. Jacob must have eventually found out there was little g-gods in his camp. Because he clearly says in two, get rid of all those foreign gods you got. So he kind of knows they have them. What do he do about it? We don't know, but it doesn't look like much to me. 
because apparently he allowed Rachel to keep them or somebody to keep them. And worst of all, if you kind of go further down the road of speculation, and, and I admit it's speculation, if they had them, in my mind, likely somebody, I don't know if it was Rachel, but somebody was worshiping these little things. And, and he was sort of turning a blind eye to it. Jacob frequently says the right thing, but he doesn't very often do the right thing. This might be one of those instances. He should have got rid of those things a long time ago, not when they got back to Bethel where he thinks God's house is. Here's another way to think about it. I'll, I'll put it more like a question. Was it wise or unwise for Jacob to let those things exist and just kind of be in his household? Well, you already know the answer. It's a trick question. But let's look at a verse. There's a verse that talks exactly about the question I ask us. Be careful then how we, you, live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity, and here's the key, because the days are evil. Look how long ago that was written. We think our days are evil. They are. They were evil back then too. See, God says they were evil too. We can't have junk like that in our life. Now, I don't think any of us have little carved idols, but do we have other stuff that we kind of prioritize too much? Maybe. But let's see what they do next. In verse 3, it says, Then come, let us go up to Bethel. So they're kind of near it, but let's go right to where we were last time, it sounds like. Where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. I just said a while ago, Jacob frequently says the right thing. He's saying it kind of right now. Let me read that part again. Who has been with me wherever I have gone. If he knows this, if he believes this, then why in the world is he the last man? Remember when they went to meet Esau? Send the slaves, send the wives, send the favorite wife last, then all the kids, and I'll go at the very back. If he knows God is with him, what's the problem? He doesn't have always the right action is how I would kind of put it. But finally, he's gone to Bethel. He's finally doing the right thing. And he seems to be getting at least more. Remember, he was also, he had a name change. He, he was name was already changed to Israel. He's still being called Jacob, as I pointed out, I think, the chapter before last week. Because he's still got a lot of Jacob in him. He's still being called Jacob tonight. We'll, we'll reconfirm his name kind of midway, though. Verse 4, it says, so what do people do? What does family do? Not just the people. This is his family. Give me your little gods. So they gave Jacob, verse 4, all the foreign gods they had and, don't miss this part, and the rings in their ears. And Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Why the earrings? I don't know. We don't know. But I would say because he, the people brought them, the people willingly did it, he might have even asked for them. We don't know that from Scripture. He asked for the little g-gods. But he did bury them together. So there's some kind of symbolic connection that we don't exactly know. But in their minds, it was necessary. It was connected. They kind of willingly did it. But it did make me think of another earring story, if you want to call it an earring story. And you'll know the one I'm talking about. Think about Moses when he was up on the mountaintop getting the Ten Commandments. I'll read you two verses. Here's Exodus. It's over in Exodus. It's Exodus 32, verse 1. The people are tired of waiting on Moses, so they go to Aaron, and here's what they say. Come, make us gods who will go before us. Little g gods again. Then in verse 2, Aaron says, okay. He says, basically, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. He asked them to give their earrings. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the verses, but it's kind of a, a story I make fun of pretty regular um, in some Bible studies I teach. He basically made a golden calf. This is the golden calf story. But when Moses comes down the hill and asks him about it, what he says is, which is the part I laugh about, I took all their earrings, I threw them in the fire, and a gold calf came out. I don't know how that happened. Come on, Aaron, that's not what happened. You made the thing. But enough about that. Um, our next main point, if we're taking notes, this is a big one too, by the way. Ungodly influences must be removed from our lives. 
It might be objects, like in this story, not likely to be little idols. Might be activities, including non-sinful activities, like a sport I'm obsessed with. I use fishing a lot, as you've heard me before. Any activity that's pulling me away from God and church is not good. But look at the last one that's kind of highlighted. It might even be people. People can be, a close friend might be an ungodly influence. And I'm not saying we should unfriend them, not be their friend. But if my friend, my best friend from, I'll just call it my past life, is always trying to drag me to a, a sinful place, I shouldn't go, should I? Would that be wise or unwise, based on our other verse? That would be unwise, exactly. So we have to distance ourselves from any ungodly influence. And I think the real test is for us, if we think about whatever scenario we're thinking about, is this person, this activity, this thing I have, is it drawing me nearer to the Lord or further away from the Lord? That's how you discern it. That's how you decide. Which direction are they pulling me? Closer is, of course, great. Further from God, got to go. Got to go. Next verse, verse 5. So the people set out. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Remember I told you we would see this concept, heaven's armies, the terror of God. God just puts the idea there's an army of his going to intervene. The terror of God fell on all the people that were probably way more numerous. You know, Jacob has a family, but it's not the huge family yet. He's got a lot of sons. We'll, we'll see the list of his sons at the end of the chapter. But God goes before him, and he fights the battle mentally, and they don't attack, even though they probably have a much bigger force. This also happens in modern times, by the way. could still happen today very easily because God is the same God. Let me give you two examples, and they're in more recent, not brand new recent, but these are fairly recent. There was a thing in 1967 called the Six-Day War. That war was basically some Arab nations trying to get Israel out of the Promised Land. They tried to sneak attack them, sort of. Egypt had a huge army, sent it north, but at one point in the battle, they looked like they were going to overwhelm Israel. They destroyed their own equipment. You can look it up, look it up and see. And they abandoned the entire battlefield and left. Destroyed their stuff and abandoned the whole battlefield. So later some people ask them, what were you doing? You, you had a superior force. Israel looked like they were going to be helpless. Why did you guys do that? Here's what they said, which is very interesting. They swore, took an oath, that they saw a giant hand in the sky, and it terrified them so bad they retreated and destroyed their equipment and left. I would make the case that was God's hand, wouldn't you? It's God's people. He's protecting them. And by the way, if you were a soldier fighting against a people that you kind of had heard all your whole life, that's God's people. I don't believe it, but that's God's people. All of a sudden, you see this ginormous hand above them and not you. It looks like it might smack you. I'd probably leave too, wouldn't you? So that's example number one. That was the Six-Day War in 67. Later, uh, there's another war in 1973 called the Yom Kippur War. And what Yom Kippur is, it's one of Israel's holy festivals. They're all fasting. They're, they're observing religious festivals, even the soldiers. And it's called, in, in an English language, the Day of Atonement. It's the Day of Atonement. Same thing that the Arab nations come against them as a couple of nations, three or four together, and they decide to attack on this holy festival because Israel won't be able to defend themselves. So 100,000 Egyptian troops come up from the south. 1,400 tanks roll in from Syria. Same kind of story. They both at one point get terrified and leave, and they had a way superior force. Israel was literally fasting and, and at rest on this festival. They asked them later what happened. They said, we saw this giant army of tanks that was 10 times the size of ours. So, so we, we left. Here's what's even cool about that. There was no such a thing, non-existent. Israel said, we didn't even have but like 10 tanks total. Israel had minimal tanks, and they, the ones they had weren't even out there rolling around. God protects his people. 
we, you and I, are his people, he'll still protect us, which brings up our next point. This one, you know, sometimes I'll use a, a scripture. This time I'm using a quote. Actually, it's a song. You've sang this before in the car, I would bet you. Chris Tomlin probably sang it on this very stage. The God of angel armies is by your side, my side. Doesn't that comfort us, even though Chris Tomlin, it's not a scripture, but it's a scriptural concept. No matter what our battle is, maybe somebody tonight needs to hear this. You're in a battle you don't think you can win. It's a health problem. It's terminal. The doctors told you there's no chance, no hope. Maybe your finances are are ruined. You have no way to, to fix your current situation. Think about that point. The God of angel armies is fighting for you. He's by your side. Trust him to fix it. It may not be a giant hand in the sky. He'll do it his way his timing, we just have, have to have faith and trust him. Back to our text, verse 6. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, and that is Bethel. A lot of these cities have two names, the old pagan name and the new name that... I guess Bethel is really important, huh? It is God's house. Um, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there where God revealed himself to him where he was fleeing from his brother. And if you look at how El Bethel translate, it means the God of Bethel. But if you remember the verses back when we first taught about Bethel, Bethel means God's house. So really the full translation would be God is the God of God's house. It's a little redundant, but I think God's just trying to drive the point home. I've got your back, Jacob. Just trust me. I'll be with you. Don't fear, I'll take care of it. The same thing he's trying to tell us. The next verse is a little tricky. Verse 8, it says, Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, not Rachel's nurse, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alan Bakuth. Alan Bakuth translates to the oak of weeping. So they were very sad. Who is this Deborah? We don't know. See, there's a few I don't knows tonight. There's no mention of her by name anyway, before or after. The closest we can come, and I would probably make the case this is what I would believe. If you remember back when um, Isaac went to get a wife, and he, he meets Rebecca, she starts to go back, and it, Scripture says, I'm just going to paraphrase, and Rebecca's nurse went with her. Remember that little verse? This says, now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, so it's likely in my mind the same person, but we don't really know. doesn't really matter. What really matters is I think the family loved her. And if it is her, she stayed with Rebecca all, because that would have been when Rebecca was very young, might have needed sort of a nursemaid. She probably would have been a teenager, you know, a late teen. Now everybody's kind of gotten old. This was a faithful lady that came out of pagan lands, probably was a pagan herself, and they loved her. It's the oak of weeping, but we don't really know. Back to the main story, verse 9. After Jacob, it's just kind of thrown in there. Verse 8 is just thrown in there to, I think, make us, like, scratch our heads a little. What's God doing? I don't know. Who's Rebecca? We know who that is. Who's Deborah? I don't know. Verse 9. After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him. That means face-to-face, by the way. Again, appeared again. This is twice. And blessed him. I think God just wanted to confirm to Jacob, I've been telling you, I've been telling you, go to Bethel. Now that you're here, here I am too, face to face. We're having a meeting. And I made the case many, many chapters ago, in my mind, this has got to be Jesus. In other verses, and you know the verse, God says, nobody can see my face and live. Can't be God the Father. The Holy Spirit has no bodily form that we know of ever. In heaven, we don't know, but in Scripture, definitely not. So it's got to be Jesus. If it's a human being appearing God, that would be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus again. And Jacob has seen um, God more than once, a couple times tonight, but he's also seen him back at the other Bethel trip. Look what he says in verse 10 to him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. And what he's really saying is, your name is deceiver. You are the deceiver. But look what he adds next. You will no longer be called Jacob, won't be called deceiver. Your name will be Israel. 
He already told him that a few chapters ago, but Jacob, as I keep saying, was still being Jacob. So he named him Israel, Israel again, because he already did this back in chapter 32. We're now in chapter 35, so three chapters ago was when he got the name, but all these verses up until now have been using the name Jacob because there's a whole lot of Jacob still in Jacob. And by the way, Israel is how we say it. It really is more pronounced with a Y, like Yis, Yisrael. And it really means God rules or God prevails. God rules or God prevails. We already know that, I hope. God does rule. And hopefully he rules every aspect of my life and your life. When we commit to follow Jesus, we're really saying we like Savior, but we also invite you to rule our lives. That's what Christianity is about. Which brings up our next point if you're taking notes. And this one's, I think, also, I don't know which point I like the most tonight, the last one or this one. Like Jacob, God has to remind us who we are, Israel in his case, because Satan is constantly trying to tell us who we were. Past tense. Let me read that again. I'll leave the Jacob part out. God has to remind us constantly who we are, because Satan tries to tell us who we were. He brings up our past. He condemns us. He tries to say we're no good. God would never care about you, all the terrible stuff you've done. If you ever think that, that's Satan, not the Lord. God says our identity is where? In Christ. We are a new creation in Christ. That is our name, our identity really is Christ. I might be Dave, but God sees me as Christ. We've talked about before because of what Jesus did on the cross. Our sins aren't just wiped away or clean. They are, but they're like, like it never happened. God sees you. Think about that sometime. God sees you as Jesus. When he looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. Try to get your head around that one sometime. Because when I look in the mirror, I see a guy that's made a lot of mistakes, don't you? God sees Jesus. Praise the Lord for God's grace, because it's just hard for us, I think, to get that sometime. Next verse. verse I'm going to read the first half of 11. 11a, as I call it. God said to him, I am. Does that sound familiar? I am God Almighty. And if you look at that in Hebrew, by the way, he's really saying El Shaddai. It's not I am, it's El Shaddai. God is just reminding Jacob, I am the great I am. He'll tell that to Moses later in the story we know. He's really saying it to Jacob right now. I am your God. Not your dad's, not your grandfather's. I was theirs. I am theirs too, but I'm yours. I am yours. So the next half of 11, it says, be fruitful. Now he gets some instructions. So God confirmed who he was. Now he gets instructions. Be fruitful and increase in number. He's going to repeat the covenant, the covenant promise that Abraham got, that Isaac got, that Jacob's already received. He's going to reconfirm it to Jacob again to make sure he gets it. Be fruitful, increase. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants, including King Jesus, by the way, in the lineage. The land I give to Abraham and Isaac also give to you. And I will also give this land to your descendants after you. So now that Jacob has been obedient, gone to Bethel like God's told him over and over, God's going to reconfirm his covenant promises. Verse 13, then God went up, went up, more on that in a second, from him at the place where he had talked with him. And if you were here back at the first Bethel appearance, I made the illustration of like a helium balloon. You ever taken a helium balloon and let it go? How it just kind of goes up until you can't see it? If you read the account of Jesus when he goes back to heaven, he's already been reincarnated. The disciples meet him on the road. And when he disappears, he doesn't just, you know, it's not a magic trick. He doesn't just hear one moment, go on the next. This, to me, the word ascended means literally what you think it does, ascended until he was out of sight. He wants us to kind of see where he's going. He wants us to want to be where he's going. He's going back to heaven, but kind of slow, steady, where we don't just look around. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? Did he fall in a hole? No, he ascended kind of like a helium balloon in, in my mind anyway. That's how I picture it. You can make your own mind up. 
But God, I think, does that for a reason. So Jacob didn't wonder, did God just abandon me? Did I, did I make him mad? What happened? If he ascended, it's kind of like, oh, I see him going. Things are okay. It's all good. If he just quickly disappeared, he'd be like, what happened? I don't know. Did I do something? Is God mad at me? No. God loves us. Verse 14. What does he do about it after the ascension? Jacob set up a stone pillar. I hate to say pillow, but I almost want to. A stone pillow. Because he already did that once right here. At the place where God had talked with him. And he poured out a drink offering on it. Drink offering. We see that in scripture later. This is the first place you'll see drink offering ever mentioned. Genesis 35. Later, it's a requirement given in Exodus for the, the Old Testament Jews as part of their sacrificial rites that God prescribed and mapped out exactly. And I'm going to put it on screen in a second. But what is this drink offering? Well, God gives even volumes of what it was required. It, it, you'll see on the screen in a second. It's one quarter hen. One quarter hen. Anybody have a measuring cup at home that's measured in hen? I don't either. But we kind of do. It's about one quart. A quarter hen is one quart. So they would pour one quart of wine into the altar fire for each lamb they sacrificed. And the reason being, it would kind of burn and evaporate and put out a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let's look at the verse I'm talking about now that I've talked about it enough. This is in Exodus when it's being written out and prescribed to the people. With the first lamb... Offer a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter hen, that's the quart I talked about, of oil from pressed olives and a quarter hen of wine as a drink offering. God told Jacob to do it in Genesis. This is for the entire nation to start doing on a regular basis. It's an Old Testament requirement that's a pleasing aroma, kind of burnt wine is the best way I could describe it. Um, I've never tried it, don't know, I heard somebody say I don't know about that one, I don't either, because it doesn't sound very pleasing to me, but to God it is, because he required it. It probably smells better than we think, but I don't really drink one, so I guess I'll never know. And anyway, we don't do Old Testament sacrifices anyway. But they were required to, this is just the first evidence, and then look at what comes next, because we, we read about drink offering, the Exodus verse mentioned oil, look what comes in Jacob's story. The second half of 14 says, he also poured oil on it. So it was quarter hen of wine, probably a quarter hen of oil. Then Jacob, in verse 15, he says, he called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. He'd already called it that three chapters ago. Bethel literally translates to the house of God. And really, these offerings, we don't need to focus on what they're exactly doing, the volumes, what they are, what we need to focus on. This is Jacob just saying, thanks, God. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for saving me. I love you. Kind of what we do, right? Just say, God, thank you. I love you. I can never repay the debt you, you did. You died for me. But thank you, God. It's a great time for us. Let's just all say it together. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Yes. He hears. We're going to switch gears in our story on the next verse, verse 16, because here's what it says. Then they moved on from Bethel. Doesn't really say God told them to, but it doesn't say he didn't, so I'll give Jacob the benefit of the doubt here, I guess. But they're kind of moving on from where they were. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, and we'll get to the Ephrath in a minute, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. So we're not really told how long they stayed in Bethel, but most Bible scholars think it's at least nine months because she's pregnant, and she's really about to give birth, and she's going to in another second or two. But where are they? Well, I put us a map. Sometimes we need a good map, don't we? There's Bethel at the top with the red arrow. At the bottom, that kind of balloon-looking thing, on our map, it's Bethlehem. That is Ephrath. We'll see that in a verse coming up. So just imagine the purple line they're traveling down to. And if you look close, I don't know if you guys can see it. I know some of you just were in Israel. That little yellow where that other little red kind of cross-looking thing is, that's the Mount of Olives. 
and it's right across the street from Jerusalem. So some of you were right there on that yellow section, kind of a connect-the-dot moment. But they were traveling from Bethel down to Bethlehem, or Ephrath, as it's called in our verse. So there's your context of where they're going. Keep that in mind. We, we can move on. But keep, keep that in mind when I read the next two verses. As she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. She's having another baby, a, a boy. Here's the sad part a little bit. As she breathed her last, so she died in childbirth. She was dying. She named her son Ben-Oni. You know, all these names mean something. Ben-Oni means son of my trouble. She named this kid son of my trouble. Probably not a great name to grow up with, I wouldn't think, but his dad's going to fix it. Verse 17, the first part says, but his father named him Benjamin. That's the name we know. We know him as Benjamin. Benjamin means, by the way, son of my right, not my left, Sorry for you lefties tonight. Um, don't blame me. Blame scripture. Son of my right hand. Because it's a cultural thing. In their culture, the right hand was known as the most favorable, the more honorable, the stronger. Probably only because most people were right-handed. There wasn't very like, there's a ratio. I don't know what the ratio is, by the way. But there's more right-hander than left. Neither one's better. Some of the really blessed people can do both equally. That's called ambidextrous. Um, some sports people do that, and it's really a good career if you can do that with both hands, like play basketball, for example. But in their culture, Jews believe the right hand is the best hand. And it's in Scripture over and over. I picked us two just kind of randomly. We could use a lot, but these two are pretty much, I think, nail it for us. Out of Exodus again, Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. So now they're talking about God's right hand, not just ours. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. So that illustration I told you where all the Arab nations saw the big hand, it was likely the right hand. Just saying, that's what Scripture says. Then look at Colossians, New Testament. Look where Jesus is. Seek the things above where Christ is. Not was, is. Where is he? Seated at the right hand of the Father. It's the more preferred side to them. Even in heaven, it's going to be true. If you remember the story, remember where the disciples were arguing about who gets the best seat in the house, as I kind of paraphrase it? We want to be at your right hand, Lord. Put one of us there. And the, the less one, I guess, can take the left. So his name is changed to son of my right hand. My strong favorite son is kind of what it reads. If you read between the lines, that's kind of what he's saying. Verse 19, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, and that is Bethlehem, is what most translations have in parentheses, over her tomb. So she died on that long purple road I had. That's why I wanted to leave that map for a second. Somewhere on that long purple road, she died, and they buried her on the side of the road. And if you were here a few chapters ago, remember we talked about all the patriarchs and their wives are mostly in this one tomb at Mamre, but Rachel is not. Um, let me read the next verse, verse 20. It says, over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, to this day, more on that in a second, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. But let's think back to what I called it that, that week, I think I call it the baby competition. Remember when Rachel and Leah were competing with servants and having affairs and trying to get concubines involved and have more sons, more sons, more sons? Here's what Rachel said in, in one of the verses. She said, give me sons or I will die. It's kind of ironic that she had a son and then died. Like, it's almost like she spoke prophecy over herself in a way. In other words, the very thing she put all her hope in, if I could only have a son, if I could only have a son, that's what killed her, having her last son. But now we're going to fast forward a little bit all the way to the time of the Babylonian exile, because it's not in Scripture, it partly is, and I'll get to that in a second too, but Jewish historians recorded that the whole time the people were leaving, because they were using those same roads we saw on the map as they headed toward Babylon, all the exiles cried out to Rachel, help us, Rachel, and when they passed her tomb, 
Comfort us. We're being exiled. We may never come back here. Help us, Mother Rachel. But the prophet Jeremiah lived during that era, and he did write some verses about it. Let's look at them. Jeremiah 31. Here, this is what the Lord said. A voice is heard in Ramah. That's that area we're talking about her tomb is. Mourning and great weeping. Who is it? Jeremiah says it's Rachel weeping for her children. And children, by the way, means her own biological, but a children also, I think, in context means the nation of Israel. You'll see why. She's refusing to be comforted because they're no more. They're being kicked out of their land. The next verse we're going to look at continues. It says, here's what the Lord replied. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, Rachel, is who he's talking to. For your work, your mourning, your grieving, that's the work, will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, your children, your symbolic children, the nation. So there's hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children, her descendants, at least genetically, will return to their own land. That's a promise to bring Israel back from exile in Babylon Jeremiah the prophet wrote it, and he's describing the people hearing Rachel mourning as they pass by, and they're crying out, help us, Rachel, we're so sad. But I told you till this day, well, it's still there. Um, even today, Rachel's tomb is still in its exact place, but, but here's what's interesting. Right now, it's in Palestinian territory. It's kind of outside Bethlehem, because we talked about Ephrath is Bethlehem. It's in the Bethlehem city limits, and if you go to Bethlehem, by the way, and I went to Israel a few years back, we went to Bethlehem, you literally leave the country of Israel, and there's big giant barbed wire and fences and concrete walls, and you're leaving Israel and going into Palestine, and the Palestinians control that area. That's where her tomb is. So the, the Jews still want to visit, the Palestinians allow them, but they have to go in bulletproof buses. They pass through these ginormous thick concrete walls with barbed wire with army soldiers guarding. And what they're doing there, they're on a pilgrimage. Because in the Jewish people's mind, Rachel is like this ideal mom who sacrificed everything for her children, including not being buried in the tomb of everybody else. She was okay with being buried on the side of the road in their mind for the sake of her family. So they go to her tomb to ask for comfort for their family. If they have like a prodigal son or daughter, they go to Rachel's tomb to ask her to help. They don't pray to her like Mary. It's not like that. They pray to God, but they cry out to Rachel to sort of help intercede with us. Like join our prayers is a better way to probably put it. So they don't pray to Rachel. They say, join our prayer, Rachel, because you're the best mom we know. But also what's interesting if Jewish women are suffering from infertility, what was Rachel's big problem in Scripture? Couldn't have kids. Remember the whole baby competition? So if ladies are, are having trouble getting pregnant, they travel to Rachel's tomb under armed guard and bulletproof bus to pray at her tomb to have children of their own. Like they think that she could sort of not help per se because she doesn't work for them like you would think you know, like maybe some people pray to Mary but they just think she's almost the, the, the figurehead, the perfect mom, and she was blessed with children of her own. So if I go to her tomb and pray about my infertility, it'll, God will hear me maybe clearer. So it's still there, kind of interesting. Anyway, enough of that rabbit trail. Back to the text, verse 21. Now look what he's called, though. Israel, not Jacob. Finally, he's Israel. Israel moved on again. It's not the nation, because now it says pitched his tent. So this is Jacob, but now he's Israel, beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben, look at this crazy part. Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Well, last week, if I, you refresh our memories here from last week, we learned about two terrible sons, Simeon and Levi, that mass murdered everybody in the, in the pagan city. They were deceitful, they lied, they were murderers. This week, the firstborn, Reuben, who should be kind of the best in their culture, he's going to go sleep with his father's concubine. He's going to sin directly against his dad. 
what a group of sons Jacob has here. He is not a very spiritual leader of his household by what's happened. Because this one is a direct sin right to his face. But in a way, should we be surprised by Reuben? I mean, we've, we've described it, or I have anyway, and you've laughed about it. It's like a soap opera, isn't it? This is literally, a, here goes soap opera again. He sleeps with his dad's wife slash concubine. This verse says concubine. But then it says Israel heard of it. What is Israel, Jacob, what does he do about it? As far as Scripture says, nothing. What he do last week in the whole horrible Dinah story? Nothing. It's kind of a pattern. With, so it, I'm kind of once again speculating, but Scripture doesn't say he did anything. And he'll be mentioned later as one of his sons, so I think he just sort of ignored it. Oh, well. It wasn't my favorite wife, and Rachel's now dead, so probably his favorite at this moment's Leah. It was just one of those concubine servant ladies. I guess I'll just let it go. Jacob being Jacob a little bit, but he's still called Israel. So now it shifts a little bit into a lineage. Um, if I read the next few verses, Jacob had 12 sons. And these are the sons and the tribes, by the way, that we know from Scripture. Let's read them. I'm going to start in verse 23 because it lists them by their mom. The sons of Leah, Reuben the firstborn, that's the one that just did this horrible thing. Simeon and Levi, they did the horrible thing last week. So Leah's sons aren't looking very good, are they? But look at the next name, Judah. That ring a bell? Lion of Judah, for example. Leah does have a good son. There he is. Ishkar and Zebulon. Then it lists in 24 the sons of Rachel. She has a good son, Joseph. We're almost getting to Joseph, by the way. Hang in there. We're almost at Joseph. And Benjamin. Joseph and Benjamin, who just had a name change, by the way. Remember? And then 25 says, the sons of Rachel's servant Bilhah, Dan and Naphtali. Then 26 says, the sons of Leah's servant Zilpah. That was the baby war thing we described. Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram, so while they were in those pagan lands. So that was a pretty big family group, but not near big enough to fight these pagans around them. That's why God put that terror of the Lord in their, in their minds. Verse 27 says, and we're almost done, by the way, Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba, and that's where that tomb is where all the other patriarchs and their wives are. And it's, that is Hebron, so it's really called Hebron on most maps, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. So his grandfather and his father are not far away. But if we think about the timeline, and we probably need a refresher because it's been chapters and chapters, it's been 20 years since Jacob left to get a wife. 20 years since he left his mother and father. And I made the case back when he left, we know from Scripture, he, he never saw his mom again. He won't see... Isaac until now. And if you think about when he left those 20 years ago, he had just, he had just deceived you know, his dad, put those goat skins on, pretended he was Esau. So he probably is wondering, how's this reunion going to go? Because he was worried about the reunion with Esau. I would bet he's wondering, is his dad still mad? I don't know. His dad never threatened to kill him like Esau did. But he also, who knows, maybe didn't even expect to see his dad because it has been 20 years. In Scripture, nothing's recorded about this meeting, which is kind of interesting. Nothing good, nothing bad. All it said was what I just read. He came home to his father Isaac in Mamre. And, and we don't know why. Um, some people, I think, believe maybe Isaac was already sort of in the end stages of life. He was really old. Maybe he wasn't, you know, seeing well, thinking well. Who knows? We don't know. Doesn't really matter. But here's what it says in the next verse. Isaac lived 180 years. Anybody want to live to 180? Think about your back and your hip and your neck. If you had 80 or 90 more years of that, and that's assuming you might be 80 or 90 now. But he is one, I'll get to it in a second, he's one of the people that still had a longer lifespan. But look at what it says in 29. He lived 180, then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, buried. 
old and full of years. And look what it says next. This is kind of cool. His sons Esau, now he's called Jacob again, though. Esau and Jacob buried him. So remember Esau and Jacob had separated. There's more coming on that in the next chapter. They both have a lot of wealth. They get possessions. They need to separate. But they're on good terms still. Their reunion wasn't just a one-day reunion. They're still okay. Even though, if you remember the story, I think Pastor Brian was the one teaching that night. Esau said, come with me, come with me. And Jacob says, no, I'm gonna, I'll be right behind you. It'll be okay. I'll send some stuff ahead of me. I'll be right there. He goes totally the other direction. He's trying to get away from Esau. But they're still on good terms. They bury their father together. 180 years. Let's go back to that for a second before we end for the night. Isaac lived 11 generations after Noah and the flood, 20 generations after Adam. All the people in that era lived very long lives. It was slowly decreasing. Remember, it was like Methuselah was the top, and then it kept going like from 800, 600, 500, 400. Now we're down to 180. And Joseph, who we're going to get to in a few weeks, Joseph is only two more generations after Isaac because he's Jacob's son. Joseph only lives to 110. So by Joseph, it's pretty much our, our lifespan is my point. But people question this 180. How in the world could people live to 180? Well, if you were here back in those early chapters of Genesis, um, Pastor Dave and I both made the point, I think, that a lot of Bible historians and myself and Dave both believe there was water vapor over the earth. It protected you know, us from like cosmic radiation, from the sun, no skin cancer, for example. Nothing could penetrate. It was a protection. And so people had this long lifespan for that. That's one reason. But also their DNA, their genetics was pure. I just read that we're, um, Isaac was only 11 generations after Noah. They didn't have all the corrupted stuff from you know, the environment and sin nature that we do. So they lived a lot longer. But it's already decreasing drastically from 180, and then Joseph is 110, like I just said. So I would say it's likely the water vapor. And, and here's what's kind of interesting on the water vapor. Not very long ago, and you can Google it. Check, check my work if you want. I'll challenge you. It's okay. Um, I don't get up here and say things. I can't back up. Scientists. Unbelieving scientists, too, by the way, have discovered, and here's what's kind of cool. Think about Genesis when I say this, that there's a reservoir of water three times the volume of the entire Earth's oceans. Let me say that again. A reservoir in the Earth, internal, that's three times the volume of all the Earth's oceans. They kind of can't figure it out, but it's, they've proved it's there. If you go back to Genesis, remember we talked about it. Rain for the ark, 40 days and 40 nights, but it also bubbled up is, I think, how we put it. It came from the earth. It went back because they just found it. It's still there. Scientists have proved Genesis as much as they hate to admit it. I told you God has a sense of humor, didn't I? God can't be challenged. We sometimes can't figure out scientifically what he did, but that doesn't mean he didn't do it. It's pretty cool to me when I read that kind of stuff and said, I already knew that, but I'm glad you guys finally figured it out. God's word said it. That's all I need. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's recap, though. We've got to end. We're going to pray. But, but here's two things I want to circle back to, really, verse 1. The two things that God sort of told Jacob, because he was Jacob at the first part of the chapter. Remember what he told him? Settle here. Build an altar here. And already made the case that for us, it still applies. Settle here doesn't mean get up and go to Bethel. You don't have to move. That's good news. But he does tell us, myself and you, come apart from the world. Come out of Shechem. Be where I'm at. Be around my people. Be of the world, but not in the world. You can have friends. Don't partake if what they're doing is not of me. Come apart. That, that's a great challenge for us, I think. Maybe some of you watching or listening need to come apart from something that's a negative influence in your life that's really worldly. The other part was build an altar. Now, we don't have to do that. We're New Testament Christians. Jesus paid the price. But our takeaway would be make God a priority. Make 
me a priority, me God, not me. Make God a priority. That's what God's saying. He's saying it to us, saying it to me. Focus on me. Worship me. Put me in every aspect of your life. I'm not just your Savior, I'm your Lord. Lord means obey. Worship me with your obedience. So that's for us. Come apart from the world. Make God a priority. Let's just pray for that. Because those can be hard, can't they? It's a challenge for Christians to do both those things. We need the Holy Spirit's help. That's what we're going to close and pray for. But before I pray for that, if anybody here tonight, maybe you've wandered away from God. Maybe he's not part of your life really at all, but he drew you here tonight for this message. Maybe you're in the comments. Maybe you're all over the campus. If you want to rededicate or even pray that prayer for the first time after the service ends, we're not going to do an altar call, but I'll be down here. Let's pray. Rededicate your heart and, and just ask God to be your Lord and Savior. Not just Savior, Lord. And you'll do those two things we just talked about. But for the rest of us, we're believers. But we're going to ask God to help us just make him more of a priority. And also to help us come apart from anything in the world that's really a negative influence. So let's pray. Lord, tonight we love you, we worship you, and we praise you. But Lord, we just ask for the Holy Spirit's help just to give us discernment and wisdom, wise, not unwise, to know what is maybe a negative influence in our lives, whether that's a, a thing, an object, or a hobby even, or a person. Let us discern what to come away from, Lord, and, and let us do it in a way that would please you. And Father, we also, we want to make a commitment, we also ask for your help just to we commit to making you a priority, Lord, but help us do that better. Help us be more like Jesus. Help us say what Jesus said, your will, not mine. And Lord, once again, those are two tough things. We need your help. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us all come apart and make your party. We love you. We praise you. To your name be all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See you this weekend, and see you next Wednesday for Holy Spirit Night. Don't miss it. Sometimes sorrow is the door.